Jobcast. They grow up so fast these days. With Megan Argo, David Alt, George Bendo, John Field, Melanie Jandra, Jen Gupta, Libby Jones, Ian Morrison, Mark Perver, and Christina Smith. The Jobcast, January 2012 edition. Hello and welcome to the Jogcast. I'm Jen Gupta. Joining me in the studio today are Mark and Libby. Hello. And Hello. joining me via Skype are Dave, Megan and Christina. Hello. Hi. And a happy new year. Happy new year and happy Christmas to everyone for a few days ago. <laughs> Actually, we are recording this on the 22nd of December. So rather Happy early. solstice. Happy solstice as well. <laughs> That's why we've got a Santa sack full of presenters for you this episode. Oh, Mark. How is he going to fit down the chimney with us all, though? <laughs> well, Depends on the size of the chimney. <laughs> That's true. So if anything really exciting happens in the week leading up to this show being released, I guess you're not going to know about it. Because the Jogcast is the only way you follow any news. Obviously. Yes. <laughs> it's also the Jogcast's sixth birthday, so... Woo-hoo. Hooray! Hooray! It seems like so long. That is a bit scary. I, well, I hadn't started my PhD when the Jogcast started. I hadn't started my undergrad. <laughs> I feel old <laughs> now. <laughs> oh my goodness. Mm. Ah, shall we move on, Dave? Yes, I think so. So in the show this month, we have interviews about massive galaxy formation and astrochemistry, and we find out what you can see in the January night sky. But first, before all of that, here's the news with Megan Argo. In the news this month, monster black holes and feeding time for Sagittarius A-star. Black holes come in various sizes. Some, the result of stellar explosions, have masses of a few times that of the Sun, but these are tiny compared to those that sit in the centres of galaxies. Such galactic black holes often have masses of several million times that of the Sun. The largest one known so far, with a mass of 6.3 billion solar masses, is that in the centre of the giant elliptical galaxy M87. And, while the observed characteristics of quasars in the early universe suggest that at least some of these extremely luminous objects were powered by black holes more than 10 billion solar masses, no remnants of such monsters have yet been found in the local universe. But now, a US-Canadian team have discovered not just one, but two central black holes with masses far exceeding that of the black hole in M87. The team, led by Nicholas McConnell of the University of California, used the Gemini North and kept two telescopes in Hawaii, to observe two relatively nearby massive elliptical galaxies. To measure the masses of the central black holes, the team used devices known as integral field spectrographs, detectors which can record spectra at several points on the sky simultaneously. By looking at the spectra from the cores of these galaxies, the astronomers could determine the speed of the stars around the black hole from the shift in the colour caused by the Doppler effect. The faster a star moves, the greater the colour shift. The speed of an object in orbit is determined by the mass of the stuff inside that orbit, so measuring the motions of the stars and modelling the velocity distributions enabled the astronomers to calculate the masses of the black holes in these two galaxies. In most galaxies, however, such a measurement is difficult, if not impossible, so other indirect methods of estimating black hole masses have to be used. Both of the galaxies observed in this study, NGC 3842 and NGC 4889, are of a type known as Brightest Cluster Galaxies, or BCGs, so-called because they are giant elliptical galaxies located near the centre of their home clusters. NGC 4889 is the brightest galaxy in the Coma Cluster, located some 103 megaparsecs from the Milky Way. Since larger galaxies tend to host heavier black holes, such galaxies are good places to look in the search for extremely massive black holes. So far, only 65 galaxies have had their black hole masses measured directly, and only four of those have been BCGs, like the two galaxies in this study, so very little is known about the properties of extremely massive black holes and how they relate to their host galaxies. The observations, published in Nature on December the 8th, show that the black holes at the centre of both NGC 3842 and NGC 4889 are extremely massive, the most massive black holes so far found in the local universe, with that in NGC 3842 having a mass of 9.7 billion solar masses, and that in NGC 4889 having a comparable and possibly slightly larger mass. These new results show that extremely massive black holes, such as those thought to have existed in the early universe, do still exist today. The study also has implications for galaxy evolution models. 
there is a widely used relation between black hole mass and the range of speeds of stars in a given galaxy, a quantity known as the stellar velocity dispersion. But these new discoveries show that, for black holes with very large masses, the relationship breaks down, suggesting a different evolutionary process for such galaxies. The closest supermassive black hole to the solar system is the one sitting in the middle of the Milky Way. Located in the middle of our galaxy's central bulge, this particular black hole, known as Sagittarius A-star, has a mass of only four million times that of the Sun. Unlike black holes in many other galaxies, Sagittarius A-star is currently quiet. Compared to other supermassive black holes thought to be about the same size, ours is very faint, suggesting that the rate of accretion of material from the surrounding environment is currently very low. But now, a team of astronomers have detected a cloud of gas on an orbit which will take it extremely close to the black hole. Because it is so much closer to us, directly measuring the mass of Sagittarius A-star is far easier than for supermassive black holes in other galaxies. Since 1992, a team of astronomers have been observing Sagittarius A-star and its surrounding stars regularly. Using images taken with the Very Large Telescope in Chile, the researchers have been following the motions of individual stars in orbit around the black hole, allowing them to make a direct measurement of its mass. In the December the 15th issue of Nature, they report that during the course of their observations, they have discovered a cloud of gas which is on an orbit which will take it into the accretion zone of the black hole. The cloud has a mass of roughly three times that of the Earth, and will pass the black hole at a distance of just 36 light hours, sometime in the summer of 2013. Since 1992, only two stars have been observed to pass this close to the black hole. Observations of the cloud over the last three years show that it has already begun to break up. It is currently moving towards the black hole at 1,700 kilometers per second, and a combination of pressure from the surrounding less dense gas, together with the gravitational shear caused by the black hole itself, will create instabilities which will disrupt the cloud, causing it to disintegrate as it travels towards the black hole. The researchers predict that as shocks cause the cloud to disrupt, its temperature should increase to more than 1 million degrees, causing X-ray emission. If the cloud fragments, then the X-ray emission should vary as the shock fronts pass through the different parts of the cloud. The team also suggests that, as the cloud passes the black hole along its highly elliptical orbit, some of the gas may collide with other parts of the cloud, pushing it into a circular orbit, from where it will be likely to accrete onto the black hole. Since little is known about the detailed physics of black hole accretion, Observations across the electromagnetic spectrum during the next decade will provide astronomers with a unique laboratory for testing our understanding of the process. And finally, December 16th saw Comet Lovejoy fly through the Sun's atmosphere and later emerge intact, something many thought was impossible. Comets are composed of a compact core of dirt and ice, leaving a dusty trail of debris behind in their orbital paths. Comet Lovejoy was discovered by Terry Lovejoy on December 2nd, 2011, and was quickly found to be a member of the Kreutz family of sun-grazing comets. Such sun-grazing comets are numerous and typically very small, but Lovejoy is some ten times larger than usual, estimated to be around 200 metres in diameter. The orbit of the comet was predicted to take it through the Sun's hot atmosphere, passing just 1,200 kilometres above the stellar surface. Many observers expected that because of the comet's size, it would not survive the encounter, but images from telescopes such as the orbiting SOHO and the twin stereo spacecraft quickly showed that the comet had in fact survived intact. As the comet continued on its orbit, moving away from the Sun, it began to regrow its tail of debris, resulting in quite a spectacle in the early morning sky. The fact that the comet survived its encounter with the Sun suggests that it was significantly larger than 200 metres in size before passing through the corona, possibly as large as 500 metres. The comet continues to put on an impressive show as it moves away from the Sun, but the possibility remains that the encounter significantly weakened the nucleus, and it could still break up completely. Thanks for that, Megan. The first of this month's interviews is Melanie talking to Professor Chris Collins about how massive galaxies are formed. Hi, I'm here today with uh, Professor Chris Collins from the Liverpool John Moore University. Um, hi, Dr. Collins. Hello. Um, we just heard a, a very interesting talk from you about testing models of galaxy formation using massive galaxies. Mm -hmm. um, very interesting. Can you first maybe tell me what, uh, how do you do those models of galaxy formations? What, what are they from? They're really based on uh, what we know about the way structure in the universe forms. So we know that 
the universe is composed of planets and stars and galaxies. Um, but when we look uh, at more distant objects, we find that the that they're less massive and that the distribution of matter is more uniform. If we go back far enough, then we have the cosmic background radiation, which tells us that uh, structure must have grew from very tiny, uh, low amplitude density perturbations that grew as a result of um, uh, gravitational attraction and to form the, the objects that we see, see today in the universe. So the, the more sophisticated models trace the distribution of matter through cosmic timescales and they illustrate how, how the force of gravity can change these small fluctuations into, into much bigger ones in, in terms of galaxies and so on. Um, and it's, it's, from, it's from that prescription that we get the predictions that we use to uh, that are confronted by the by the observations. Okay, so there's is there different types of models? Um, they're based usually. There's really one type of 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 model that seems to work best uh, these days, which um, uh, is basically what's called an. It's, it's essentially a computer model, in fact, um, in which you essentially just populate um, uh, the a model universe with. Um, points, mass points, um, and you introduce a, a spectrum of, of fluctuations, tiny ripples, if you like, in, the, in their distribution. Um, and you basically just um, allow that to evolve. And pretty much um, many of the features that we, uh, that, that we predict should be um, taking place actually are um, uh, uh, are, are mirrored in the, in the simulations. There are more sophisticated versions of those which introduce uh, gas dynamics. So to try and understand how the uh, I mean the, the, the in general these simulations are just simulating essentially the dark matter in the universe. We know that the the, the biggest mass component, the biggest component of matter in the universe is dark. That means we can't see it. It's in some unknown form. Um, and these simulations are good at developing, uh, at predicting how that uh, matter should, should evolve. Uh, the more sophisticated versions introduce more complex physics in order to, to try and understand how what we call the baryonic material, which is the material, the matter that we're more used to, um, it's the tables and chairs and so on that uh, that's the stuff of everyday life. That has more complicated physics involved in it on these scales, and the hydrodynamic models that uh, are used try and uh, uh, try and mimic that. And so you were you were saying that you're looking at uh, clusters of galaxies to kind of test those models. Uh, why clusters? Well, clusters are what we call uh, the they're the largest gravitationally bound objects. So we're bound to the Earth. Um, if you jump up, you come back down. We're bound to it. Um, and the Earth is bound to the Sun, the solar system, and so on. Uh, the Sun is bound to the galaxy. Uh, and, and if you go up in scale, the largest objects that are gravitationally bound are, are clusters. Um, and that gives them a unique position because we know that, uh, that, that clusters of galaxies should evolve relatively quickly because they're, they're the largest gravitationally bound objects. So as we go back in time, uh, we should see fewer of them. And we know from the simulations I mentioned earlier, we know how quickly they should evolve. And so we have quite an accurate prediction uh, for how many they should be and what, what their properties should be. So we're able to uh, confront those models with observations because we can see these these objects out to quite large cosmological distances, distances going back to 80 or 90% of the age of the universe. Um, so they become uh, really very important laboratories for understanding 
the properties of, of galaxies. How easy are they to observe? Is it just you take optical data and you look at it and she's like, oh, big cluster here? Or? You, you can do that. You can do that. And that's a very good way of picking out local clusters, just looking at the galaxies in them from starting 20 or 30 years ago with uh, uh, photographic emulsion, just Kodak photographic emulsion plates uh, that were taken where you could easily find the local clusters. But as you go as you go out further in distance, you, of course, are only seeing the clusters in projection. You don't see them in three dimensions. The, the photographs and, and latterly the, the CCD images uh, of these uh, of these clusters are only in two dimensions, and so the contrast between the cluster and which may contain thousands of galaxies and the background distribution of galaxies becomes less and less. So when you get out to um, cosmological distances, uh, you need to find other techniques. So, for example, we know that uh, the clusters of galaxies have very large gravitational potential wells. And that's full of uh, hot gas, which emits X-rays. It's very easy, relatively easy, to pick up those uh, that emission, that signature of uh, uh, of X-ray emission from a from a cluster potential using uh, X-ray satellites. So that's a more modern method of of, of selecting them. Okay. Um, so you've been looking at actual data and comparing them to models. Do you find that the the models represent well, the evolution of cluster, or do you find differences? Well, it's always, it's always good in, in science when when the uh, I mean it's good when the data uh, agree with the model because it means you're on the right path and it means that you're uh, you, you're, you're progressing. Um, but it's probably more exciting when the data disagrees with the with the model because it's then that you have to think harder and it's then that you have to come up with new ideas and it's the ideas that really drive science in general, but particularly drive uh, cosmology. And actually, yes, we are in a position at the moment where we don't have uh, good agreement between the observations and the, and the theoretical predictions. So that's an exciting time. It's an exciting time, that's right. What kind of uh, discrepancies, or is there any peculiar objects or anything particular that's interesting yeah i mean what we what we tend to find is what we've been looking at is the largest galaxies within these clusters so as i mentioned before these galaxies contain these clusters contain thousands of galaxies if we just look at the biggest galaxies then what we find is that they actually don't change very much in in uh, with time they remain essentially the same mass so they essentially weigh the same over cosmological uh, epochs and they roughly uh, are the same size so if you want an analogy it's a bit like um, you know your seven or eight year old child being as tall as their parents uh, at that age and having exactly the same characteristics one wonders why they've grown uh, so so well so quickly and it's that kind of problem that we have the the theoretical model predicts that they should grow much quicker over time uh, than, than they than they seem to. Oh. And what would be an explanation for that? Well, that's a good question. Um, it's not clear. It may well be that we don't have a good understanding of uh, how objects grow in the very early universe. It could well be that objects, rather than accumulate material in the way I've been describing, which does take a long period of time. They actually grow very quickly and they collapse directly from giant gas clouds. Um, that would uh, that would quicken the uh, accumulation of mass in the early universe and that would make them bigger uh, and more massive much earlier. So if that was the case, the the theory would, would agree more with the observations. But wouldn't that cause problems for smaller galaxies then? Um, not necessarily. You could form the, the, the smaller galaxies much later uh, without any, without too much uh, problem. We know roughly, it's sort of a rule of thumb, that the smaller the galaxy is, the, the later it forms, or the more recent its stellar population is. So it's really, the problem really is for the big, for, for forming uh, early enough, the very biggest galaxies, because they, uh, there's a lot of mass associated that has to collapse, uh, to form the galaxy. 
and uh, it has to be done in a quick time. Keep watching and and and, uh, and uh, you know read the, the general scientific literature because I think this is an area that's not not well understood, and there'll be there'll be new results coming coming shortly. There's a number of new missions that space missions in particular oh. that will extend the range of the observations quite significantly. Uh, so watch out for those results. Can you maybe tell us a bit more about those new missions? Yeah, sure. I mean, at the moment, the the Planck satellite, for example, is is in orbit and it's designed to measure the fluctuations in the cosmic background radiation that I mentioned to high precision. But as a byproduct of that, it will also find lots of very distant clusters of galaxies if they're there. And uh, from those observations, it should be very easy to work out um, just what, uh, uh, just how massive they are, and compare those to what we expect from 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 simulations. And this is uh, this is something that uh, uh, that many uh, astronomers in this area are, uh, are waiting to see. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Professor Collins. Thank you. Thanks for that, Melanie. Our second interview is all about molecules in space. Here's George talking to Dr. Serena Vitti. Okay, I am here today with Serena Vitti from the University of College London. Serena has done a lot of work on a lot of different things. Serena, uh, welcome to Jobcast. Thank you. First of all, can you, um, now looking through the uh, list of papers that you've done, you seem to have done awful lot of different papers on awful lot of different things. Can you tell us exactly what you work on and why your interests are so far ranging? Okay. Well, the reason why my interests are so far ranging is because uh, my main interest is uh, working with molecules. So I'm interested in molecules in space. So wherever you find a molecule, I'm interested in looking at it, studying it, and trying to see whether we can gather any information about uh, the universe through molecules. So what type of telescopes do, or which telescopes do you use to study molecules? So molecules tend to emit in the some millimeter microwave, radio, and infrared uh, wavelength, so nothing visible, I'm afraid. So generally, the, the telescopes that we use are the submillimeters and infrared. So which telescopes have you used recently? Uh, the main one that I've used, uh, the ground base, is the JCMT in Hawaii, and uh, also, of course, uh, Herschel, which is a satellite telescope. These are the two main telescopes at the moment. And I guess uh, we'll talk a little bit later about uh, which telescopes you'll be looking forward to using in the future. Indeed. So what can we learn from looking at molecules in space? Okay. Well, molecules have these great characteristics that um, they emit different frequencies um, and they can trace gas, which is very hot and very dense, but they can also trace that, uh, gas that is very cold and not so dense. So if you know how a molecule is made of, and if you know the structure of a molecule, you can use it as a tool to look at a variety of different environment in space. So a molecule allows you to look at a dark patch in space that you cannot see in the visible, and allows you to, to know what are the physical characteristics of this dark patch in space. If you want just an example, molecules are great um, if you want to look at the very early stages of formation of a star, because during those stages the star is uh, surrounded by a lot of gas, a lot of dust, and so you do not see the very early stage of its formation. And by looking at molecules, you can tell at what stage the star is and what the main characteristics are. So what are the typical types of uh, molecules that you would look at? For example, you described um, some molecules will trace hot, dense gas. Yeah. Other molecules will tr trace cold, dense gas. Which molecular lines would you look at to be able to tell whether or not you're looking at hot, dense gas or cold, dense gas? Okay, so let me give you some examples. Uh, there are too many to mention all, but uh, let's take, for example, carbon monoxide which is uh, the second most abundant molecule in space after hydrogen, the hydrogen molecule. Um, carbon monoxide has uh, some lines that so emits um, in um, some conditions that can be defined as very cold and not so dense. And uh, those 
Those lines can give you a lot of information about the gas that surrounds stars, for example. Um, however, if you look at um, some other lines, more energetic lines of carbon monoxide, uh, they can tell you quite a lot about uh, the interaction between a very young star and its environment. And this interaction is very um, obvious if you look at some optical images um, in the form of jets and outflows that come out of a star and impact on the interstellar medium, on the gas surrounding it. And... Uh, Carbon monoxide can tell you quite a lot about that interaction. Any other more exotic molecules that you like to look at? Yes, so if you want to know a little bit about one of the most exotic molecules I've looked at, that's glycolhaldehyde, which is a very basic sugar, and uh, I've been told is uh, related to life because it can actually form RNA or combine with RNA. Um, I do not know the biological detail, but certainly it's one of the most exotic molecules I've looked at. Um, this molecule has been uh, detected in um, a couple of regions, in particular, has been detected in a region where massive stars are forming, and possibly planets, we don't know, of course, there's some evidence of disks around the stars where glycolhaldehyde has been discovered. Um, it is a very interesting molecule, of course, because it's so large, uh, it could be prebiotic, and uh, it's hard to know how it can actually form in space, because it's so such a big molecule. It seems unlikely that it forms in the gas itself, so it's probably forming on the dust and then evaporates back into the gas when the star is formed. So you already mentioned uh, that you work on jets out mm -hmm. of protostellar objects. There are a few other things, uh, just looking through the number of papers that you seem to have worked on. So I saw that you wrote a paper a couple of years ago on the atmospheres of red dwarf stars. This type of stars, uh, as you call them, red dwarfs, uh, they were an interest of mine quite a few years ago. They now became more of a hobby than, than my main uh, research topic. But they're interesting because uh, they are very small, very cold for stars. Uh, so if you think of the sun, the atmosphere of our sun is about 6,000 Kelvin, more or less. The atmospheres of uh, these particular stars, red dwarfs, uh, go from... Uh, 1,000 Kelvin to 2,400 Kelvin, more or less, so they're, they're quite cold. Um, in fact, uh, if you keep going down, you go into regimes of brown dwarfs, which are the so-called failed stars, and then you keep going down in temperature, you, of course, get into the extrasolar planet regime. The atmospheres of these red dwarfs, just like the atmospheres of planets, are dominated by molecules. Molecules that do not dissociate completely at those temperatures of 2,000 Kelvin. What types of molecules? The two main molecules that I've been working uh, with are carbon monoxide, of course, and water. Water is everywhere in the atmospheres of the stars and um, causes most of the opacity. In other words, it basically obscures the light, uh, in a sense, in certain bands of the spectrum, the lights from the stars. But most importantly, again, water is another of those molecules that um, can span a very wide range of density and temperatures. Uh, so in other words, you can find it in very cold environments and you can find water in very hot environments. And even within the atmospheres of the stars, you can use water to determine the temperature of the star, which is obviously uh, very important if you want to know whether you're looking at a red dwarf or you're looking at a brown dwarf or maybe you're looking at a giant planet, for example. So we use molecules as diagnostics of the characteristics of these very tiny, small stars, which are, however, everywhere. So they, in number, they dominate the stellar populations. I saw that you had another paper where you actually used molecular lines to look at interstellar magnetic fields and understand interstellar magnetic fields. Can you tell us about that? That's probably quite difficult to do. It is maybe possible to look at the abundances or maybe the ratio between different molecules as a diagnostic of how strong the magnetic field is in a particular stellar environment. It's quite speculative, but if you have a high sensitivity, this may be possible for some molecules. Certainly OH is an example of a molecule that can be used to trace magnetic field. And then one other thing which I know that you have been talking about recently is looking at molecules in very distant galaxies mm -hmm. at very high redshifts. Can you tell us what you're using molecules for in other galaxies? Okay, so this is, I think, 
uh, a very interesting topic for the future. Until quite recently, um, astronomers did not believe that molecules could be observed uh, in faraway galaxies. Until a few years ago, the detection of carbon monoxide, again, was observed at a redshift of Z uh, equals 6.42, which is very far away. If carbon monoxide is there, it's likely that many other molecules are there. So as the telescopes become more and more sensitive, there is no reason to believe that you should not be able to detect them at high redshifts. Keeping to, to, to now, uh, then one has to basically observe molecules in more close-by galaxies to get a feeling of what molecules do in other galaxies, because they may not do what they're doing in our own galaxies. Other galaxies are different in terms of uh, energetic processes that uh, rule the gas in these galaxies. So, for example, they may be dominated by strong ultraviolet radiation. Uh, they may instead be uh, much more quiescent than our own galaxy. Depending on what type of galaxy you look at, uh, the molecules will be distributed in, a, in different ways. Um, so the idea behind uh, our work on looking at molecules in external galaxies is to try to see whether we can use molecules to disentangle the different components within a galaxy. If you think of our own galaxy, you can take a telescope and look at different parts of the galaxy. Uh, the further you go, the less able you are to do that, because within your beam you will encompass the whole galaxy. So how do you know whether whatever you're looking is coming from star-forming regions within this galaxy or more quiescent regions? And molecules can tell you that. So you can use molecules as a substitute for spatial resolution, basically. Uh, do you have any recent uh, highlights from your research which uh, you think are particularly interesting? Well, I think uh, uh, the work on the glycolaldehyde, which we already covered, uh, certainly is one of the main highlights of my work recently, simply because it's a very large molecule, quite unknown, and you can speculate regarding its origin. Another Highlight, I would say, is this work that you just mentioned on the high redshift. I think that with the ALMA, for example, uh, we should be able to uh, use molecules more and more at a high redshift. And so I'm looking forward to use uh, our predictions for these molecules at high redshift to study them with ALMA. Okay, can you tell us about what your plans are for the future? You've talked a lot about using various other telescopes, uh, Herschel and the JCMT, even if you may not name those telescopes specifically. What telescopes are you looking forward to using in the future? Definitely ALMA. ALMA is going to give us the opportunity of studying in detail the distribution of molecules in our own galaxy, star-forming regions within our own galaxy, as well as uh, nearby galaxies and, and high-redshift galaxies. So I think ALMA will be what will keep us occupied for the next uh, few decades, probably. Are there any other telescopes that you're looking forward to? Well, of course, there is still the JCMT that is still very much alive and up and running. And uh, recently, there was uh, a new instrument installed on the JCMT, SCUBA-2, which should give us a lot of insights into the gas and dust of, uh, of galaxies, for example. So I think a combination of the JCMT um, and ALMA would uh, keep us occupied for quite a while. Okay, thank you very much for talking with us today. Thank you. Thanks for that, George. Now we get to the part of the show where we fit in everything else that we want to talk about. It's the odds and ends section. So what have we got this time? Well, first of all, the Russian Mars probe Phobos Grunt, which was supposed to land on Phobos, collect rock and return them, it got stuck in Earth's orbit as we reported in the November Extra show. And... It's actually going to fall back to Earth in January. The date given is January 9th, give or take five and a half days. And they're expecting about 200 kilograms to make it through to the surface in about 20 to 30 pieces. And people are just saying it's likely that these will end up in the ocean, but really they don't really have much idea of where they're going to fall. I guess closer to the date they'll have a better idea. We've had quite a few things falling to Earth recently, and I'm going to say third time unlucky. It might fall on <laughs> land. It does feel a bit like the beginning of the end of the world. Well, <laughs> We're not going one... there, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> the last one, I think they were a bit worried about Seattle. But yeah, there has been a large number of big things falling to Earth, um, which is a little bit... Uh... Is, is that a technical term? 
big things, yeah. <laughs> Large pieces of debris. Uh... <laughs> Poor Phobos Grunt. It's, it's tried its best. They've been trying to communicate with it for a long time with mixed success, but now it seems to be on the way down inexorably. So the others that have fallen to Earth, they can't control because they ran out of fuel. Surely Phobos Grunt has a lot of fuel, so why can't they control this one? Well, it does have a lot of fuel because it's not been to Phobos yet, but the trouble is that it's not actually talking to the ground stations. They've been trying to communicate with it quite hard for a while, and they did have some success with the ground station in Western Australia, but it was only a very brief communication, and they've not actually managed to get it under control. So, unfortunately, there's no way to do anything with it, so it's just going to come down pretty much uncontrolled. And it also has some pretty nasty chemicals on board, and people are just saying that they... They're hoping that they burn up on re-entry. <laughs> Reassuring, Christina. Yeah. I feel much better about this now. <laughs> what type of nasty chemicals? Dimethylhydrazine. Mmm. That's so nasty, I haven't even heard of it. Rocket fuel. Moving on, just wanted to mention a mission that hopefully will launch successfully. We've mentioned before that SpaceX, which is one of the companies that NASA is given money to to develop commercial manned vehicles, SpaceX are planning to launch their Dragon capsule to the International Space Station and NASA have set the date as February the 7th for that launch. So we'll probably report on that again close to the time, but I just wanted to mention it. Mainly because Dragon's going to the ISS just sounds cool. Dragon's docking with the ISS. Yeah, exactly. Another thing NASA is interested in, which is quite fashionable these days, is bringing back bits of comets to the Earth. And to do this, they've developed a comet harpoon (laughs) which I think sounds really cool uh, and a little bit scary. There is a prototype already. It's got a sharp harpoon end made of steel, and then it's got a half-inch thick, which is about a centimetre or so thick steel cable, which can shoot the harpoon up to a mile from a spacecraft. So the idea is when you get a comet, which might be spinning quite quickly and all uneven, you don't really want to have to land on it and take off again. You just fly above it and then harpoon it (laughs) with... A force equal to half a tonne of weight on Earth. Dig into the surface, bring back whatever's there, and then you can avoid the awkward business of actually landing on it. I would love them to call it a a tractor beam. A tractor beam. (laughs) A harpoon sounds more sort of seafaring, doesn't it, really, than Star Trek. (laughs) Uh, Maybe, yes. So this is something that you said they've got a prototype, but they don't have any plans to actually launch one yet. Not a plan for a specific spaceship or comet, I think. So there's a a new telescope in Chile that's undergoing science verification at the moment. It's called the VLT Survey Telescope, the VST. And during this verification phase, they've taken a fantastic image of a galaxy called NGC 253, also known as the Sculptor Galaxy, because it's in the constellation of Sculptor, which is in in the Southern Hemisphere. So at a declination of about minus 25. So a bit hard to see from this hemisphere, but... It's one of the closest galaxies to us. Uh, it's only 11.5 million light years away, so it's fairly close by, by universe standards. And it's a fantastic image. It's, it's wide field and it's really detailed. So you can not only zoom in on the galaxy and have a look at all the stars and the clusters and the dust lanes and everything, you can have a look at the galaxies in the surrounding sky as well. This is a, an image on the ESO webpage. So if you go to their site, you can actually zoom in on the image itself and have a look at really detailed at the, at the image. And it's, it's really cool. I'd highly recommend you go and have a play with it. So is that inside the local group, that galaxy? It is, yeah. It's, it's a really interesting galaxy because it's, it's actually a starburst. So there's lots and lots of star formation going on inside it. So there are supernova. If you look in the radio, you can see supernova remnants. There's lots of X-ray binaries. There's all sorts of cool stuff. It's a really, really scientifically fascinating galaxy. And it's, it's pretty too, which is always good. I like that on the ESO website, it says that it's pumping out new stars at a furious pace. <laughs> I like that. It's probably a few per year. I'm not sure what the actual star formation rate is in NGC 253, but it's considerably higher than it is in the Milky Way. On a finally, and a risk of sounding an overwhelming with Earth-sized planets, two more have been announced from the Kepler mission. Hooray. So these are Earth-sized, but not Earth-like. No. <laughs> There's quite a clear distinction between Earth-like and Earth-sized, apparently. And Libby came into the office yesterday and declared that she had Earth fatigue, which I thought was a brilliant phrase. For a minute, we thought that Libby was sick of being on Earth and wanted to be launched into space, but apparently she's just tired of Earth-like planets. Well, I'm happy to join SpaceX and Dragon to go 
docking to the ISS <laughs> to get away from her fatigue as well. However, I'd like to talk more about the apps that you can get for Planet Discoveries because they're actually kind of cool. I like them. So these are apps for smartphones and things. There's one that actually that will text you when there's a new planet discovered. So people must be getting inundated because Kepler keeps on announcing loads of them. Does it have to be confirmed or is it just when they think they've found a candidate? I have no idea. They're mostly confirmed because they have the, uh, the size and compare it to the other solar system bodies and what composition. So it has like a little icon to tell you if it's like rocky or gas giants. And as I don't go near a smartphone, because phones have a tendency of being destroyed near me, um, <laughs> I, I don't have this app. But I, I think even the having a fatigue, I would get this app because it sounds and looks pretty cool. And especially it shows you how the method of the discovered. So you can see a little transit happening in the light curve. Oh, wow. They are really cool. The exoplanet app that I have on my on my iPod, um, you, you can plot correlation diagrams and all sorts. So if you're really interested, you can plot things like what the radius is versus the eccentricity. Or uh, it's it's just hours of fun just messing around with with data. It's really geeky, but it's kind of fun. Apparently, there are 716 exoplanets known as of today, according to the app on my iPod. Anyway, I wonder how much that will go up before the show's released. <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> well, that's gone up by six since yesterday. Well, we're all keeping an eye on this, considering we, we apparently have Earth fatigue. Obviously, we don't have exoplanet fatigue. Now for the person that doesn't need Kepler or apps to tell him about the planets in the night sky, here's Ian Morrison. A new year and a lovely sky to start off with. I often think the evening sky in January is one of the best we can possibly see. We have that lovely constellation Orion the Hunter due south in the evening. The three stars of his belt point downwards to the left to the bright star Sirius in Canis Major. Up to the right, we come up to the constellation of Taurus the Bull and the little group of stars called the Hyades, which has an interloper really, Aldebaran, a bright orangey star, it's a red giant star, that forms the eye of Taurus the Bull. You carry on beyond that you come to a rather lovely grouping of stars called the Pleiades. Um, a lady called Carol has just bought a new telescope and she emailed the Jogcast as to what perhaps she might use it to look at. Well, the Pleiades is one obvious, beautiful thing to see with a small telescope, one of my favourite sights in the whole of the sky. Um, there are two bright stars sort of in the centre of the Pleiades. One of them has got a lovely triplet of fainter stars beside it, and between it and the other, there's a very nice double star, apparently, one of which is nice and red. Lovely area to look at. And um, that's one thing you should look at. Also, of course, start with the central star of Orion's belt, drop downwards, and you come to the sword of Orion, a lovely region of nebulosity there, which is the Orion Nebula, which is a region of star formation. And at its heart, there's a lovely little group of stars called the Trapezium. We normally see four, but occasionally you can see a fifth. They're very, very bright blue stars. Their light, visual light, lightens up the whole of that region, showing the outlines of the dust clouds. But their ultraviolet light excites the hydrogen to give out this lovely pinky-red colour, the light from the hydrogen alpha line. So that's two lovely things to look at. I think the third thing I would say to look at, obviously now, is Jupiter. And we'll come back to that a little bit later on. Just continuing with the stars briefly, up to the left of Orion, we have Gemini, the heavenly twins, with Castor above and Pollux slightly below. And then down below them, what looks like just a single star, pretty much by itself, is Procyon, which is the bright star in Canis Minor. So that's a lovely region to look at. Um, above Orion, we have Auriga coming up towards the, the zenith with its bright yellowish star called Capella. Uh, the Milky Way actually runs uh, between Orion and Gemini, above Taurus, through Auriga, and there's some very nice little star clusters, M36, 37 and 38, which you can pick out just about with binoculars, nice to observe with a telescope. As the evening goes on, then Leo the Lion will be rising in the southeast. And that's another nice constellation, looking like one of the lions in Trafalgar Square, sort of on its paws. 
So a lovely region to look at, and you can spend a long time just enjoying the sky at this time of year. Well, what about the planets? Well, I've already mentioned Jupiter, and it's beautifully seen now in the evening sky. On the 1st of January, at about 7.30 in the evening, it'll be high, about 50 degrees elevation, due south, so hardly a better time to observe it. It's on the boundary of Pisces and Aries. It's moving further away from us now. Basically, it's staying in the same place, but the, the Earth is moving away as it moves around the Sun. So the angular size has dropped a little to 41 arc seconds, but that still allows you to easily see the equatorial bands, two dark bands that go around the surface. In the lower of those, you may have a chance to see what's called the Great Red Spot, but it doesn't look particularly red to me. It looks like a rather faint yellow spot. Uh, in the highlights of the night sky page that I write each month, I have a list of the times when the Great Red Spot is actually in transit, basically facing us, and that should give you a good chance to have a look for it. Um, I have noticed recently in the northern equatorial belt um, some quite prominent dark markings, and these are called barges. And as I said, um, if you haven't bought a small telescope yet, this is a lovely time to buy one. You've got Jupiter looking very lovely high in the sky. And as the months go on, Saturn will be more obvious, as we shall see. It passed behind the sun on the 18th of October, some time ago now. And once they've done that, the planets always appear in the pre-dawn sky. So it rises, in fact, now, around the 1st of January, at 2 o'clock in the morning. Obviously a bit too low to look at then. But that means by about five o'clock, when it's still pretty dark, you can actually see it quite easily. And it'll be only, I'm afraid, about um, 28 degrees or so above the horizon. Sadly, Saturn, in a way, is moving down the ecliptic to where the sun would be in the winter. And so it will not be rising as high in the sky as it did a few years ago. On the other hand, having been through the point in its orbit where the rings are edge onto us, which was a year or so ago, they are now opening out and are about 15 degrees from the line of sight. That makes it much easier to see the rather prominent dark ring, which is called Cassini's division, that separates two of the rings of Saturn. Um, the angular size is about 17 arc seconds. That will be gradually getting larger as Saturn becomes nearer to what is called opposition, when it's on the opposite side of the Earth from the Sun, and actually then nearest to us. Mercury, well that passed in front of the Sun on December, and it's reappeared in the pre-dawn sky towards the southeast. It shines at about magnitude minus 0.4, it's reasonably bright as the month begins, and its brightness in fact is slowly increasing up to minus 0.7. It's moving away from the Earth now, and its angular size is thus decreasing, down to about 4.8 arc seconds by the end of the month, which means that it's not really possible to see any detail on Mercury, and very few amateur astronomers ever do. Well, Mars is in the ascendant. I'm sure they say that on some of these um, programs about astrology, but that's not what I'm getting at. Um, it's now rising before midnight, and before dawn, it'll be about 47 degrees due south. So that's not a bad time if you can get yourself up that early to have a look for it. It's increasing its brightness. It'll be minus 0.4 magnitude by the end of the month. And as it gets nearer to us, the angular size is increasing up to 11 arc seconds by month's end. That means it should now be possible to see details on the salmon pink disc. There's a very prominent V-shape, Certis Major, a major feature on the surface. And the North Polar Cap is actually tilted towards us, and that should be fairly prominent as well. But you do need to have a telescope that's well aligned, collimated is the word, also well cooled down. The markings on Mars are quite subtle, and to see them, you have to try quite hard. Well, Venus, that's now gradually increasing its separation from the Sun and will be 34 degrees away. 
which sounds quite a long distance. And in fact, I saw it near the equator just a, a week or so ago, rising that high pretty well, straight above where the sun had set. Very, very obvious. But sadly, at these northern um, latitudes, the line of the ecliptic is at quite a shallow angle to the horizon at this time of year. And so even though it's a long way from the sun, its elevation at sunset is only about 18 degrees. So not quite so obvious to see as you might think. Um, the angular size as it comes nearer to us is increasing. Uh, but at the same time, the amount of the surface that we see illuminated is decreasing. The two effects cancel out. And the effect is that the magnitude stays constant at minus 4, which is pretty bright, throughout the month. So what about some highlights? Well, we'll start at the beginning and work through the month. On the night 3rd, 4th of January, probably best in the early morning, we have what's called the Quadrantids, the Quadrantid Meteor Shower. Now, as I'm sure you all know, the name we give to meteor showers is based upon the constellation in which the radiant, the point from which they appear to diverge, is. And you might say to me, well, I haven't heard of a constellation called the Quadrant. Well, of course, it isn't there anymore. It actually was a small constellation named after the quadrant that was used by astronomers such as Tycho Brahe to measure the elevation of a star as it transited, as it went due south. If you measure that elevation and you also measure the time at which that happens, it enables you to plot a chart of the sky, which, of course, Tycho did to great effect. Anyway... It's just between booties and the tail, or the handle, I should say, of the plough, the tail of, of the bear. And I have a map on the Night Sky page showing you where to look. They can be up to 200 metres per hour, but they're not very bright. There will be a moon in the sky, but it sets about 3.30 in the morning. It's a first quarter moon, and so from about 1 to 2 o'clock, its light should not be too much of a problem. So if it is clear, wrap up well, have a nice woolly hat, nice flask of coffee or something to keep you awake, and go out and have a look, basically towards the north generally. Many of you will not probably have observed a minor planet or asteroid. These lie in what's called the main belt between Mars and Jupiter. The brightest, but not in fact the largest, is called Vesta. And if you look southwest on the 10th of January, should it be clear, you'll actually see the constellation of Aquarius. And very close, just up to the left, just three art minutes away from the fourth magnitude star, Tau Aquarii, will lie Vesta, shining at magnitude 8. So a reasonable pair of binoculars should be able to pick it out. I've given a chart on the night sky page to help. On January the 12th, 13th and 14th, you've also got a chance to spot the planet Neptune. Because Venus, which is rising up into the sky, as we've mentioned, basically is just below it on those three nights, particularly on the 13th, when it's only about a degree away, just below to the left of Neptune. Neptune is again magnitude plus eight, so you'll need binoculars to pick it out. But if, in fact, on the 13th you centre Venus in the field of view, you'll easily spot, I hope, Neptune just up and to the right, about a third of the way to the edge of the field of view, something like that. Um, on the 12th and the 14th, it's not quite as close, but again, a little chart will show you how to find it. A nice little skyscape on January the 16th, about an hour before dawn, I've mentioned that Saturn is a pre-dawn object. Well, on that night, we have a nice third-quarter moon near Saturn, along with the brightest star in the constellation of Virgo, which is called Spica. In fact, as they rise at about 3 o'clock in the morning, they're in almost a straight line. But by dawn, they've actually sort of moved apart a bit. But a nice little grouping. Saturn, Spica and a third quarter moon. And finally, on the 26th of January, you've got a chance to spot Venus and a thin crescent moon. 
So just after sunset, about 4.40pm on the 26th, uh, Venus, as I've said, is about magnitude minus 4, and the Moon will really be quite a thin crescent, and that gives you a chance to actually observe what we sometimes call the old Moon in the new Moon's arms. Earthshine is another way of uh, talking about it. And with binoculars, you should be able to see some of the, quotes dark part of the surface actually illuminated subtly by the light reflected from clouds on the Earth's surface. So that's a nice thing to look at as well. So it's a good month, I think, for observing. I do hope you enjoy it. Thanks for that, Ian. And now here's John Field to tell us what you can see in the southern night sky this month. Welcome to the January Jodcast coming from Cartram Observatory in Wellington, New Zealand. January finds the planets Venus and Jupiter in our evening sky. Venus is low down in the west, setting about two hours after sunset, whilst Jupiter is high in the north and will set around midnight. In early January, Jupiter moves from the constellation of Pisces the Fish and into the constellation of Aries the Ram. Jupiter is now past its best for observing and is slowly fading in brightness and size as it moves away from the Earth. Aries is a fake constellation said to be the ram that rescued two young children from captivity. Another legend has it associated with the story of Jason and the Golden Fleece. This constellation contains a number of double stars, but larger telescopes are needed to easily observe these. In ancient times, the Northern Hemisphere's spring equinox occurred when the sun was in Aries. This marked the time when the sun crossed from the Southern Hemisphere sky and into the Northern Hemisphere sky. This point was used as a starting place of right ascension, the equivalent of longitude on the sky. In sharp contrast to faint Aries, Orion the Hunter, our summer constellation, has a large number of bright stars and sights for binoculars and any size telescope. This bright group of stars dominates our summer evening sky and us southern hemisphere observers hangs upside down. Orion's brightest stars, Rigel, Betelgeuse and Bellatrix, along with the three stars of his belt, form an easily seen pattern in the evening sky. Well placed to viewing is the Orion Nebula, which can be found in the middle of Orion's sword. To the unaided eye, this nebula appears as a fuzzy star to the human eye. If you have binoculars or a small telescope, they will reveal this as a bat-shaped cloud. A 100mm or greater telescope will reveal a number of stars in and around the nebula, which include a tight group of four stars known as the trapezium. It is the ultraviolet radiation from the brightest star in the trapezium that is illuminating the surrounding cloud for a region of about 20 light years. This nebula is estimated to be 1,300 light years away and stars are still forming in this stellar nursery. If you want to explore the many nebulae and star clusters in and around Orion, a star atlas or a computer-based planetarium program will reveal a host of objects to observe. Marking Orion's left foot is Rigel, the brightest star in Orion, although it is listed as Beta, the second brightest star. It is the sixth brightest star in the night sky, shining at magnitude 0.18. Running from a star nearby to Rigel and across the sky to Achena is the long and rambling constellation of Eridanus the River. In mythology, Eridanus was the river into which Phaeton fell after trying to drive the chariot of his father Helios, the sun god, across the sky. It is also thought that this constellation represents a real river such as the Euphrates or the Nile. It symbolises the river's unknown source as it disappeared below the southern horizon, as seen from the northern hemisphere, to its termination at Achena, Alpha Eridanus. To ancient Indian astronomers, it represents the Ganges. Originally, Eridanus included the stars of what is now the small constellation of Fornax, Furnus, and it stretched only as far as Peter Eridano, which was then known as Achena, from the Arabic meaning the end of the river. In recent times, Eridanus was extended southwards below the horizon visible to the ancient Greeks, and another star has been assigned the name Achena. To find Eridanus, look to Rigel and Orion, and nearby is Beta Eridani. And along the river, we find a number of interesting sites. Epsilon Eridone is a magnitude 3.7 star, famous by being the most sun-like of all the nearby stars. It is only 10.5 light years away. This yellow dwarf star was one of the first stars to be sent radio signals in case there is life there. Unfortunately, no reply has been received. Theta Eridone Akamar is a striking pair of blue-white stars of magnitudes 3.2 and 4.4. The two stars are separated by just over 8 arc seconds and are easily seen through a telescope. 32 Eridano is a beautiful double star for a small telescope, consisting of a magnitude 5 yellow star and a blue-green magnitude 6.3 companion. Their separation is just under 7 arc seconds, slightly closer than the two stars forming Akamar. 
Forte Eridona is a remarkable triple star system 16 light years away. Small telescopes reveal a magnitude 4.4 yellow star that is similar to our Sun. Nearby is a widely separated magnitude 9.6 white dwarf companion, the most easily seen white dwarf in the sky. Large telescopes will reveal the white dwarf as an 11th magnitude red dwarf companion. Also along the river we find NGC 1535, a small 9th magnitude planetary nebula appearing in a nice field of scattered stars. Eridanus River ends with the star Achenar, the ninth brightest star in our nighttime sky. Returning to the northern sky, we find Taurus along with the Pleiades Matarihi to the west of Orion. They will set around midnight. In the summer evening sky, they may twinkle markedly after sunset. This is due to thermal currents in the Earth's atmosphere. After midnight, the Earth's surface and atmosphere has cooled and the twinkling should decrease and the view should become steadier. Try counting the number of stars you can see in this cluster with the unaided eye or in binoculars. Long exposure photographs reveal a blue haze surrounding these stars. This haze is coming from a cloud of water ice crystals through which the cluster is moving. To the east of Orion are its two hunting companions, Canis Major the large and Canis Minor the small dog. The brightest star in our night sky, Sirius, marks the collar of Canis Major. For those staying out later, they will see Mars rise after midnight in the constellation of Leo. It will appear as a reddish coloured star and is brighter than any of the other nearby stars. It will slowly brighten as it moves towards opposition, which is in March. This opposition will not be particularly close or bright, but Mars will still be worth a look through a telescope. You might be able to see dark markings on the disk and perhaps a polar cap. Later, Saturn will rise in Virgo and will slowly brighten as it heads towards opposition in April. Saturn's rings are slowly tilting towards us and will lead to better views of the rings later this year. We had a visitor to the inner solar system that may be visible in January. Comet Lovejoy had a close approach to the Sun on December 15, 2011 and will be in the morning sky and by late December it will be visible throughout the night here in the Southern Hemisphere. This comet may now have dropped in brightness as it moves away from the Sun and may now only be visible in telescopes. Unfortunately, there are no other bright comets expected to be visible in 2012. Perhaps the astronomical highlight of 2012 will be the transit of Venus on the 6th of June. We hope you have clear skies during these summer nights and take the opportunity to view some of the delights of our southern skies. Thanks for that, John. And now we get on to the feedback part of the show. As we've said a couple of times, we are recording this quite early. It's only the 22nd of December. So if you contacted us in the week leading up to the show release, then we won't be mentioning it on this show. This also means that we don't actually have much feedback. But we had a lovely Christmas card from Vincent. So thank you very much for that. And over on Flickr, there is a spectacular lunar eclipse image by Joseph Brimacombe with reds and oranges and pinks. And it's like a sunset all over the moon. So if you do want to get in touch with us, you can do so via the website at www.jogcast.net. On the forum at forum.jogcast.net. On Twitter at twitter.com slash jogcast. On Facebook at facebook.com slash jodcast. On YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast. And on Flickr at flickr.com slash groups slash jobcast. And don't forget that you can send us posts. The address, as always, is on the website. So that brings us to the end of the show. Thanks to Professor Chris Collins and Dr Serena Vitti for the interviews. The editors were Mark Perver, Megan Argo, Claire Bretherton, Melanie Jondra, Jen Gupta and Dan Thornton. And the producer was Mark Perver. And we might have to say a special thank you to Jen. Because on our sixth birthday... I don't know how she can do this to us, but she's leaving <laughs> as being in charge of the Jodcast. I assume this is leaving in the same sense as Dave left. Hooray! <laughs> yes, I am hanging up my hat as the big bad boss of the Jodcast and passing it on to the very capable Libby and Christina. Libby currently looks terrified. I am also looking terrified, but you can't see me. <laughs> I'm also looking terrified at the prospects of this new era. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, they actually frown upon you if you don't complete your PhD. I didn't, you know, kind of realise that, so I thought I should probably focus on my thesis. But as Mark said, this is a leaving in the same way that Dave has left. I will be helping out behind the scenes still, but I probably won't be heard on many shows. So thank you to all the listeners for putting up with me for the last few years. And thank you to all you lovely Jodcasters, especially the Jodfather, who is not with us today. Anyone else want to say anything about how much they love me? Go, Jen, you're awesome. 
<laughs> it sounded so unconvincing. Oh, what was it? Witty and... Oh. Witty, elegant and graceful. Yeah, witty, elegant, <laughs> elegant and graceful. <laughs> oh no, this? my words come back to haunt me. Ah. <laughs> Let's finish this show. Well, I just want to say, yeah, thank you very much, Jen, for everything that you've done on the Jodcast. You, you've been a, a wonderful source of fun and inspiration and energy for us all. <laughs> and uh, thank you very much for putting up with some of my intros that have... Um, um but yes thank you so much you've done a fantastic job as uh as head honcho so well done and we look forward to hearing from you soon yes you have to come back and visit us when you're dr jen absolutely well i think i have to come back and do at least one more before i leave because i've managed to get away without the uh quiz that I've made people go through we're not organized enough to have made a quiz (laughs) but we'll work on it Anyway, we should also probably get an interview with you about your actual thesis content. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Until next time, but not for me, jod on. Happy New Year, everybody. Bye. 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 Bye.